Well, you know what that means. It's time to expose the money lies. Let's get started. How is your brain wired to think about making money in your business? Is your brain a pessimist or is your brain an optimist? I noticed this morning that my husband took two bagels out of the freezer to uh, thaw them out so that we could eat them. And he set them in the sun on the edge of the dining room table where I happened to be working. Now, this is my favorite place to do my quiet time. And I do a lot of writing there. So it's really quiet in there and there's a lot of light. It's just, to me, it's a very nourishing place to work. So when he put uh, the bagels in there, I thought, you know, that might be a little bit of a precarious place to put food, knowing that we have a very food-motivated beagle in the house. But, you know, then I thought about it and I was like, hmm, I can't really actually think of any time where he has stolen something off the counter or the table. Now, I was used to being really, really careful about how accessible food was on a table or a countertop because our other dog, Savannah, may she rest in peace. Uh, we had to put her down last year at the ripe old age of 17. But when she was a lot younger and a lot more agile, she would steal anything that was within her reach. And when I say within reach, I mean beyond where she could jump. She was a pretty good jumper. She was about 65 pounds, but she was pretty skinny and because she was kind of the shape of a greyhound and she had really powerful back legs that could launch her through the open window of an SUV or onto a bar height countertop at a moment's notice. Trust me, she has done both of those things. So we really had to be very intentional about not leaving food where she could steal it. And But we've never really had that problem with Buster the Beagle. And so I was sitting there looking at those bagels and I thought, how interesting is that? I never really thought about that. It seems like it would be completely the opposite because the beagle is very motivated by food and he would probably eat until he burst if we gave him the opportunity. Even on our walks, as a matter of fact, on our walk this evening, uh, we walked past the construction site in our neighborhood and he just goes down through there and he knows that there's going to be discarded chicken bones or food containers. And he just trails the scent to those things until he finds it. And then he scarves it down before we can pull him away from it. But he typically doesn't steal food from the counters or the table. Now, there are even times that I get his breakfast ready and. I forget to put it down for him. I leave it on the counter and he will even wait patiently by the food station until somebody happens to come back by and notice him lying there, you know, waiting for somebody to put his food down. So he won't even steal his own food off the countertop that, you know, belongs to him. Um, so even though he's very food motivated, he doesn't steal food. But Savannah was opposite. She was not food motivated. She was not even a really big eater. In fact, we would always leave her food out all the time. 
that is until we got Buster. And she would nibble whenever she wanted. Sometimes she might not eat all day. She just would eat when she felt like it and not eat if she didn't feel like. I wish I could be like that. <laughs> but, you know, leave some stew meat on the counter while you go to get a Band-Aid for the finger you just accidentally cut. And the stew meat will not be there when you return. Trust me, been there. and done that. <laughs> so as I looked at these bagels, they were within easy reach for him. All he had to do was just, you know, stand a little bit on his hind legs and get it. I thought about that and I was just very curious when I was thinking that. I'm like, okay, Savannah wasn't a big eater, not super fo- food motivated. Buster is a beagle, so super motivated by food, but Savannah would steal food, and Buster, as a general rule, doesn't. So it's like, I wonder what that's driven by. I was, you know, kind of fascinated by that thought. And so my curious brain, of course, wanted to know why. That's just the kind of brain I have. You know, I always want to understand why. I always want to know how things work. If I know why and how something works, then I can always connect the dots and apply it to other scenarios. So I guess that's just my brain's way of being very efficient. But, you know, because that way I don't have to remember what to do. I don't have to memorize all of the actions or all the steps I need to take in any scenario. And I don't have to remember all of the scenarios. And I don't have to have seen a scenario before uh, in order to know how to approach it. I can simply use the logic that I've learned and figure out how to apply it to, you know, whatever I haven't seen before. So anyway, my brain wanted to know why was the dog not food motivated more likely to steal food than the food motivated dog? It's, and I don't know, maybe you don't find this interesting, but I thought, That's pretty interesting. So here's what my brain came up with. Because Savannah never overate, we would leave her food down all the time. We sometimes had to bribe her to eat (laughs) with treats. We would put treats in her food bowl to get her to eat if she hadn't ate in a day or whatever. I mean, but most of the time she would eat when she felt like it. Buster, on the other hand, when we adopted him, he was a newly rescued stray. We got him from a foster, uh, there was a foster family that was keeping him at the time, but he was skin and bones. He had only been in the foster family a couple days. And when we would put his food down, he would literally inhale it. He would not slow down. We had to train him to slow down to eat because, I mean, he would just swallow it. He wouldn't even chew it. So we had to teach him the food wasn't going anywhere. You can take your time. And we would make him wait to be given permission and require him to eat slowly. And so he learned to wait for permission to eat. So, and Savannah didn't. She ate whenever she wanted. So whenever she saw an opportunity, she took advantage of it. But Buster was trained to filter out those opportunities unless they were, you know, presented to him. So because, you know, seeing opportunities that he was not allowed to take advantage of, and these these are all my theories, right? You can feel free to disagree. But when he saw opportunities he was not allowed to take advantage of him, 
it, it only caused him discomfort because he couldn't take advantage or, or he would be punished for doing that. And so he just learned to kind of tune it out. And I could even see him sometimes when he would look at food out of the corner of his eye and then he would turn away so that he couldn't see it. It was so funny. So, but it's so fascinating, right? That Savannah took advantage of the opportunities because she saw all the possibilities. Buster filtered out those opportunities because he didn't see them as possibilities. So that's the way that their brains ended up being wired. That's how they learn to think about food, I guess. So the the reason I find this interesting that it, I think it's the same with us. So how we think about things is based on how we've trained our brain or how our brain is wired. And I think that's also the difference between pessimist and optimist. Pessimism is our brain's default. Negative thinking is kind of a default for our brain because, you know, when our brain comes from the factory, so to speak, um, it's designed to perpetuate our survival. Uh, but we can train our brain to think more optimistically. Now, some people seem to be wired that way, and this might have been from their environment, how they grew up, just like my dog Savannah. Um, She was with us since she was a very small puppy, and she learned optimism. She learned that she would always be taken care of, and she learned that there were going to be opportunities and possibilities, and apparently nothing ever shook that belief to make her stop believing that. Um, And I can think of some people that I've done peer coaching with that think that way. You know, there's this one peer coach, she never had to worry about money, so her brain is wired more optimistically than most of my clients, all of my clients probably. My clients are wired more pessimistically. And so I've been reading a book by Steve Chandler, it's 100 Ways to Motivate Yourself, Now, if you haven't read it, it has some really great wisdom and insights. I have been loving uh, reading it. And I personally love the way he writes. I've written, I've read a couple other books that he's written, but I just, he just seems to offer a really good balance and mix of ideas, concepts, examples, mixing in personal experience, stories. And he does it in a way that makes, just makes it easy for me to visualize and absorb what he's talking about. So I was reading this book last night and there's a couple of chapters he has in the book that talk about pessimism and optimism. The way he distinguishes between the two is very similar to how I help my clients see the differences between scarcity mindset and an abundant mindset. And I think scarcity is very similar to pessimism and abundance is very similar to optimism. So I started thinking about, you know, how I coach my clients on these types of things and how that relates to what he was talking about in the book. And I think most of us think of ourselves as optimists. Uh, I certainly used to think I was an optimist, but I've realized when I started, you know, getting more, learning more about coaching that I really was a pessimist. So I used to be a pessimist that sometimes have optimistic thoughts, but now I've coached myself to be an optimist who sometimes has pessimistic thoughts. So 
I have overcome a lot of my scarcity thinking and have learned how to detect the lies that that cause that to come up for me. So if you're still thinking like a pessimist most of the time and you want to have more optimistic results, I want to share these um, insights, a couple of the insights from this book so you can think like an optimist more often and start to train your brain to act more from optimism or possibility. So he has this really cool story in the book where he says, um, and I quote, Let's say a pessimist has made up his mind to clean his garage on a Saturday morning. He wakes up, walks out to the garage, and opens the door. He is shocked to see just how much of a mess it is. Forget this, the pessimist says with disgust. No one could clean this garage in one day. At that point, the pessimist slams the garage door shut and goes back inside to do something else. Pessimists are all-or-nothing thinkers, Steve says. They think in catastrophic absolutes. They're either going to do something perfectly or not at all. And he he continues on. Now let's look at how the optimist would face the same problem. He wakes up on the same morning, goes to the same garage, sees the same mess, and even utters the same first words to himself. Forget this. No one could clean this garage in one day. But this is where the key difference between an optimist and a pessimist shows itself. Instead of going back into the house, the optimist keeps thinking. Okay, so I can't clean the whole garage, he said. What could I do that would make a difference? He looks for a while and thinks things over. Finally, it occurs to him that he could break the garage down into four sections and do just one section today. For sure, I'll do one today, he says, and even if I only do one section each Saturday, I'll have the whole garage in great shape before the month is over. A month later, you see a pessimist with a filthy garage and an optimist with a clean garage. End of quote. When we see a situation as hopeless, we stop thinking. Think about it. What do you do when you feel powerless, hopeless, or defeated? You give up. You stop trying. You stop believing there's a way through or round or even over the problem. If you thought there was a way, then you wouldn't stop trying. You wouldn't stop trying to figure it out. You, um, you would keep trying to figure it out. So I was recently noticing this with a client. She was spinning in the river of misery. She was wanting so badly to get out of the river but refusing to see the options in front of her. Why? Because she didn't see those options as possibilities. She was in pessimism. She was in scarcity. Now, when you're in scarcity, you can't see the possibilities. When you stop seeing the possibilities, it only drives you further into scarcity. Not only was she not seeing the possibilities, she wasn't even able to see the problem. I asked her a couple of times, what's the problem here? And she just kept talking about the the pain that she was in, right? So you can't solve a problem you can't even see. You just stay stuck. And this is pretty much where she was. So the key is to open up the door to possibilities, even if it's just a tiny crack. So can you see one small thing you can do? What if that leads to one more small thing you can do? Then the door starts to open up a little wider and then a little few other 
little possibilities come in, things start to become a lot less hopeless. And then you can identify the problem. Then things start to turn positive. And little by little, you're spiraling up towards a solution. And that's the spiral you want to be in, not the downward spiral where you just spin and spin and spin until you spin out of control. Now, here's another quote from the book that I've definitely seen play out in my uh, client's coaching sessions. So maybe this will help you as well. Steve Chandler writes, optimism is by nature expansive. It opens door after door to what's possible. Pessimism is just the opposite. It is constrictive. It shuts the door on possibility, end quote. Now, how I've seen that play out is a client might come to the session so stuck. She's so stuck. It's almost like she's driving a car with four ball tires trying to get home in an ice storm. Stuck. I'm telling you. At first, when I ask her questions, she's just blocked. She doesn't see any answers. She has a lot of I don't knows. So I try to help her open the door just to crack. Maybe I'll offer her one small option. Maybe I'll give her a possible thing that she could think or a a way that she could see it differently. Or I might offer a way that another client has seen things that has helped them. So just opening the door a tiny crack. And then she might be able to think of an option. Even if it's one that she kind of just shrugs off as something that she either just doesn't really like or one that doesn't seem like a real possibility. Um, But Even if she doesn't like that possibility, usually if I give her a little bit of time, she'll think of another option that she likes a little bit better. Because see, that first possibility opens up the door. And what does she do? She keeps thinking. So before you know it, we've brainstormed a decent list of possibilities that she can then take away from the session and explore further. And that's the way it is with money lies. When you believe money lies, you see more limitations than possibilities. Money lies close the door on possibilities. But you can retrain your brain to think in possibilities. Just by detecting the money lies and questioning them, you can start to see more possibilities. You can start to open up that door again. So start to ask questions that will uncover the truth and open the door to possibilities. And with some repetition of practicing this, as those limitations come up for you, then you'll train your brain to look for possibilities and close the door on limitation. When you keep the door open, you can at least keep thinking until you find the possibility that will work for you, until you find the solution. So think about how is your brain trained to think? Is it trained to stop thinking and not see the possibilities? Or is it trained to think in terms of possibilities and keep thinking, right? Do you quit? Do you stop thinking? What can you do today to start training your brain to keep thinking until you find a solution, right? Can you ask those questions? Can you brainstorm some questions that you can ask yourself when you get stuck? One of my favorite go-to questions is, what are my options, right? That opens the door just a crack and I can start to think of at least one possibility, right? Right. 
So that's something that you might want to try. What will you start practicing on a regular basis to create the default of optimism so you can find more opportunities than limitations? Just like my Savannah, my sweet Savannah. Um, so how can you become aware of those limits you're placing on yourself? So you be you can become more unlimited and experience more in your life and in your business because you are made for more. I'm Jill Wright, the money coach for life coaches, because we are all really good at solving other people's problems. We were made for this. That doesn't mean we don't have drama of our own. I know I do. So many life coaches have a limited money mindset. What you believe about yourself and about making money as a coach is just not true. And it's those lies that are keeping so many of you from making the money you deserve to make. If this is you, you could be here listening to this podcast for a reason. To detect those lies and uncover the truth that will free you up to make that money and make that impact. Because detecting money lies is my thing. It's my jam. I have a spot for you right now. Come master your money mindset. Let me show you how to detect money lies and show you the truth that lives inside of you so you can sign more clients, help more people, and make more money. Whether you just want to see if you're believing money lies or if you want help exploring your relationship with money, I'll help you figure out the path to building a solid foundation for your growing business. Go ahead and schedule your value call. Just come and get coached. Get to know what money lies you're believing. I'll help you with that. It doesn't even matter if you can afford it or not. It doesn't matter if you're not ready to hire a coach. That's why I call it a value call and not a sales call, not a mini session, not a consult. It's not about me selling my program. It's about you and finding out what you need to move forward in your business. That's my mission, to equip and empower coaches, to get out there and equip and empower other women who need your help. That's who I love working with, women that are called to equip and empower other women. If that's you and you're not doing that at the level you want to, we have to talk about that. We have to figure out what you want to do about it. So even if you don't know if you're ready to hire a coach, even if you think you can't afford it, hey, Let's be real. If you think you can afford me, you probably don't need a money coach. (laughs) So if you think that your limited money mindset is holding you back, if you think you might be believing money lies, then book a value call. It's really that simple. It really is that easy. And there really is no pressure. I don't ask for a decision on that first call. You just get pure, simple value. So go to jillwrightcoaching.com, click on the work with me page and book your value call. I'll see you there.